Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 303. Finally, we talk about FreeNAS. Recorded September 17th, 2017, and brought to you by Element OP Productions. ElementOP.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I am your host, Mark, the Wild Zoo Man. That's how they do it on Drive Time Radio, right? Uh, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel. And joining me, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Oxygener Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome back, folks. We're not quite as desperate as last week. Oh, wasn't that really bad last week? Apologies for everyone for our technical failures for last week. It, it happens. What do you do? But you know, I think when it was all said and done, the had other than our whining about it, there was no real notice uh, in the in in product. That's because we're true professionals. <laughs> we are about as far from professionals as you can get. Um, because yeah. professionals get money. That's all I'm saying. I'm going to just drop the mic. Um. You know, this time last week, I was talking about uh, the overreaction uh, here of, of my, I think I mentioned it, right? The, the schools had, been, had let out two days um, uh, just in advance before a drop of rain had fallen. Uh, Irma was coming this way. And so the Cobb County School District let out Monday and Tuesday. Um, and basically, if you know something about Atlanta, these names will mean something. If not, like any city in the world, there's a south end, there's a north end, and there's midtown, right? So pick pick any big city. You can pretty much uh, get that combination. And so what happened was as the storm crossed 700 miles of Florida and and then ravaged another 300 miles of of South Georgia, once it hit Midtown Atlanta, it just gave up. I'm done. So if you were south of Midtown Atlanta, you had trees uprooted, power lines down. People were without power for three or four days. If you were in Midtown Atlanta, you had uh, maybe some trees knocked down, maybe some power out for a couple of hours. If you were north of Midtown, uptown, and, and above, you got some rain. It was the oddest thing I'd ever seen watching the radar. It just got there and just dissipated, just and <laughs> spread across the rest of the country. So I don't know what Atlanta did, but it sucked the wind right out of Irma. The hurricane killer. But it's in spite of it all. island. That's possible, but it went through a lot of heat islands before it got to that one. Well, yeah, but uh, by then it's in mo- it's all off the Gulf, and so it's not pulling the moist air as much. That's got to come over land. So then, when it hits that heat island, that just kind of dissipates it out. So you know, yay concrete, yay yeah. earth killing. We saved Atlanta. <laughs> but despite the fact that all we got here was some some wind and some rain, I mean, it was really uh, it was nothing that anybody had been through a, a Texas. Uh, spring thunderstorm would even pay attention to and yet we still managed to have a flooded kitchen not because of the storm but because my garbage disposal picked that particular day to rust out um and we were home using the sink more than we typically would and everything we dropped down the sink went right into the cabinet under the garbage disposal and we didn't notice it because it went right down there and right into the subfloor under that and i went downstairs to the basement i was like why is there two gallons of water in the basement floor? So I mopped up the, the floor and I looked around. I couldn't figure out what I thought. Maybe one of the kids had just spilled something. Didn't pay any attention to it. A few hours later, I went back down. Hey, there's more water there. Um, so the next morning, we saw the real extent of the damage. The All that water that hadn't fallen into the basement had sucked into the subfloor. And now my kitchen floor is bowing and warping and ruined. So I have a flood story 
the same weekend as Hurricane Irma, but I can't blame it on Hurricane Irma. Sure you can. <laughs> There's people in, in Houston right now that are just like fuming right. listening to you talking about that when their roof is somewhere down the street, right. you know? <laughs> yeah, all things considered, I'll take having to replace about 30 boards in my kitchen uh, over, you know, anything else uh, that, that, that weekend had to offer. Uh, but yeah, that's what my you story. need is you need to buy an aqua dam and place it around the pipe. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the interesting thing was then I couldn't figure I couldn't get a plumber to come out because they were all either on emergency watch as they should be, or they had had battened down their own hatches. And so uh, still with only mild rain having come, I couldn't get a plumber to come out uh, for a couple of more days. And then when the guy came out, he said, well, the problem here is is at some point they put in this deep farmhouse sink, but they didn't change any of the plumbing. And so the the garbage disposal actually sits about an inch below the drain line. And so it just sits there with water in it all the time. And this thing that should have lasted a decade or more can't be more than five years old. I said, great, what will it take to replace it? Well, you got two choices. You rip out the entire granite countertop, take the farmhouse sink out, put a regular sink back in, or you rip out the entire floor and wall and move all the pipes. And I said, or option B, I buy a new garbage disposal for $100 every three to four years. So that's what we're looking at right now. So how, how many days were your kids out of school? Just two days. Uh, parts of oh, the south so, were out okay. uh, longer because they, they had more significant storm damage and, and no power and stuff. But my kids were out two days. And by the end of that second day, man, were they bored. <laughs> Kids, I'm going to need you to write a research paper on the effects of flooding <laughs> in Houston, Texas. I need sources. So the that the, the Monday after we recorded here, um, I worked from home that day because they had closed the office building. The, the owners of the building in Midtown where I worked, actually we're a little north of Midtown, uh, had closed the building preemptively again. Because like I said, once the governor declares a state of emergency, there are certain protocols in in both healthcare and and corporate thing that just kick in automatically um so i worked from home that day and then we were all back uh in in the office the second day and it was really just kind of a weird thing it was just why why did we have a day off for no reason but it wasn't off we were working except those of us who didn't have any power so it was an odd mix of i I can't get anything done because some of my teammates aren't here uh because they don't have power and others are and it's just weird but again Compared to people who literally lost everything, uh, I should shut up. But I'm sitting behind a microphone. No, we're, we're Americans. We need to whine. That, yeah. That's what we do. Our our uh, culture and civilization is falling all around us. What else do we have to do but whine? A friend of mine uh, who is from the Houston area, um, but lives now in the Dallas area and back in Texas now, had this brilliant brainstorm of an idea. And as far as I can tell, it's her idea. Um I, I don't want to mention her name because I haven't asked her permission, but this idea should go viral. It deserves to go viral. Um, she is collecting uh, tuxedos and prom dresses for kids in Houston who, you know, that want to get some part of their life back. If they had a dress, it was ruined. If they didn't have a dress. Parents aren't going to have the money now because they're essentially rebuilding their entire lives. And what a simple thing you can do if you bought that prom dress or your daughter brought that prom dress and wore, has worn it once and has been in the closet ever since, ship that thing down to Houston. Now, don't just send a bunch of dresses and tuxedos, but uh, touch base with local schools down there. Um, and this would be an amazing gift for these kids 
who have gone through so much to be able to to give them a a normal prom. So I thought that was a great idea that I'd mentioned on the show. Yeah, Very I saw good. that somewhere online. I don't remember where it was. Well, that's a mutual friend. That's why you saw that. Cool. And uh, my church is sending mud out buckets. Um, it's a it's a bucket with uh, rubber gloves and uh, chalk lines and uh, flashlights and all the stuff you, that could fit in a bucket. Not all the stuff you need, but all the stuff that you can fit in a bucket that you would need to help muck out a house. Um, and I kind of thought that was you know kind of cutesy, honestly. Until I read a uh, no, it was a it was a vlog of a, a guy down in Houston saying that uh, he told a story about a family who'd gotten trapped up in their basement um, by the floodwaters, and it's okay, they're not a not a bad, bad story. The water got down before he got into the basement, but they had taken with them a five gallon bucket for nature purposes, and uh, when right. everything was all said and done, they set that excrement filled bucket out by the street, and somebody stole it because buckets are in such high demand right now that somebody was willing to cart off four gallons of human filth in order to get a bucket so send buckets because there aren't any home depot lowe's all those guys they've been out of buckets for a while now so anyway just practical things at this point that they need Hmm. so i guess the moral of that story is if you're going to take a bucket in the basement take some uh you know garbage bags for bucket liners (laughs) yes because then you can reuse the bucket exactly yes uh, and Seth, I, I have no lead in because I don't know what this is. What is Iron Sky? Okay, Iron Sky is a movie that is available on uh, Amazon Prime, and it is a European science fiction kind of uh, campy movie. That is the the premise of the movie is that uh, Germany, uh, some Germans somehow made it to the dark side of the moon moon in 1945, and so they've been building a Nazi empire that's going to attack America in 2018. And it's kind of set in the future. It came out a few years ago. And um, so, you know, they're coming to Earth to get to recon and stuff. And you can tell it's European made. Um, I love uh, Wikipedia. Uh, Iron Sky is a 2012 Finnish German Australian comic science fiction action film. And uh, it's campy enough. So if you imagine the space between a good movie and an asylum ripoff. And it's almost like dead in the middle of that. So there's, it's campy, but actually, I mean, you know, not cheesy, but it's not a great movie. It is an excellent movie for like a Netflix or an Amazon Prime watch. Um, well worth it. I think you would enjoy it, Mark, because it's a European version of kind of how they see Americans. So, you know, you can look at it with your filmmaker eyes and, I, like I say, I think it's it's kind of cool and it's kind of good enough. I've had it on my watch list for a long time, and I finally broke down and watched it. And glad I did. Not a great movie, but it was uh, it was very enjoyable. What's the score out of five? Um, out of five, I would probably give it uh, three and a half, three and three quarters. Well, it was kind of sl- it was slow to get started, but like the second half of the movie was. I mean, it picked up the pace and it was really good. And uh, 
you know, there's this one scene where they're attack. You know, the the Nazis are coming from the moon, uh, and so uh, you know, sp- spoiler alerts: the Americans had armed their space station and turned it into a ship, and it was fighting, and they needed help because you know there was just so many Nazis, and all of a sudden, all the other spaceships, you know, come. Did and they form Voltron? America was like, "You lied to us. You armed your spaceship," and they're like, "You lied too." And she's like, "We're Americans. We always lie." And then, like around the corner, okay, who didn't? arm their spaceships and this the fin the guy from finland kind of raises his hand <laughs> it was it's just it's funny and cheesy and like i say not great but very enjoyable all right not great but enjoyable i'll take that uh since you brought it up i i'm currently listening to an audio book that's not even the right word for it an audio presentation by audible and it's uh called uh the home front and it's an odd sort of collection of almost 30-minute radio television shows. Uh, Martin. It, yeah, um, Martin Sheen. What, uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's free through Veterans Day. Uh, so if you're an Audible subscriber, go pick it up. It's uh, it's interesting um, and weird at the same time. But uh, it's the, the basic premise is it's the home front during the run-up to and through World War II uh, as told by recordings of americans you know um so far it's all been americans I, i'm not sure if it gets into anything else but i'm about halfway through and so it's uh uh fdr's fireside chats it's uh you know back then recording was an expensive and difficult process uh so the recordings are kind of 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 precious and none of them very few of them are off the cuff they're almost all prepared but it's interesting they they go into you know flat out propaganda pieces and opposition pieces and it's a real uh, slice of history uh as told through an audio narrative so the home front hosted by martin sheen uh free on audible uh through uh the first of november so check it they out. had that on on the audible app you could get and i don't know if they I only ever got episode one. It never, two never came down, and I ended up deleting it a while back. But um, I actually enjoyed at least episode one. I thought it was, uh, thought it was, it was good. Yeah, the, they do a reintro and a and an outro on every episode, and it's like twenty six yeah. episodes. So you hear Martin Sheen introduce himself twenty six times, and you hear well, thanks to this organization twenty six times. That's kind of annoying. Uh, but I guess if it were put together as sort of a weekly episodic podcast drop, it would make more sense. And it, I kind of get the sense that that's what this was originally planned to do. And then they just bundled it up and made a, a quote unquote book out of it. Hmm. Cool. So if you're an audible guy and if you're a podcast guy, why aren't you an audible guy? Uh, check it out. Um, and if you have never done, uh, been an audible subscriber, you can go to elementopi.com slash audible. And use my referral link, and your first month is free. Spoiler alert, first month's free for everybody. Um, <laughs> but if you choose to keep the subscription, I get uh, a fairly significant kickback. So you could uh, enjoy a service and uh, and throw me some love all at the same time. Um, you know, I, I pride myself on my hosting skills. I've been doing this for about seven years now. I, I, have, I have mastered in many ways the art of the transition. But I have no idea how to give you a lead into meat hacking, Miles. <laughs> meat hacking. Doesn't that sound good? <laughs> so uh, you guys are carnivores, right? Uh, I have been known <laughs> to eat the flesh of a dead animal. <laughs> I know Seth is. <laughs> yep. 
<laughs> All right. Well, I'm, I pride myself at being a carnivore. Uh, and then last year I decided to build myself a little vegetable garden around the side of the house. And uh, doing that in Phoenix is a little tricky because, I mean, you know, what do you grow in the desert other than cactus? Well, apparently you can grow lots of things. So I went to YouTube and s- sought out all these local veggie growers in the in the area. And there's this one dude, he's crazy. His name's the Vegan Athlete. Now, I never thought vegans were athletes. I was wrong. I was wrong, right? This guy is ripped. I mean, this guy is the, one of the fittest dudes I've ever seen. He's like one of these black belt martial arts, Zen Buddhist kung fu dudes. Uh, but he's also a great gardener. So I thought, well, you know, he lives in Phoenix, so I'll learn about gardening. Well, I'm going watching all these shows, and one pops up about his favorite restaurant. So I thought, oh, yeah, okay, here we go. It'll be like hippie food. You know, you eat grass or you eat a piece of lettuce or something, and I don't need that, you know, give me steak. Anyway, I watched it, and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. There's this, there's this guy who started this restaurant. He's like a 25-year experienced uh, five-star chef. And he cooks everything, but he decided he wanted to do everything vegetarian, but as if it was a five-star meat-based, you know, uh, menu. And anyway, this guy did a show about it, and it looked really weird. And I thought, well, maybe we'll, we'll check this out. So my wife and I went down there, and oh, my God. <laughs> I had, this is, it freaks me out even thinking about it because I can't believe I did this. This place, you look at the menu and you think you're in a regular diner with anything you want. Like, I ordered buffalo wings. And what came out were buffalo wings. I mean, I swear, they were buffalo wings. They tasted like chicken. They looked like buffalo wings. I ate them and thought, I've just eaten chicken. No, no. It's some chemical thing that the vegans do that is a hack on chicken. So that's weird. Anyway, then I'm looking across the table and these people ordered a burger. And I'm talking about a big burger, right? And it looks like it's got two big meat patties in there the whole bit. And they're eating it and they're loving it. It's not meat. It's some meat vegetable thing that these Guys have hacked. They've hacked this thing. And so I said, okay, you know what? Oh, here we go. Ultimate test. I'm going to order a Philly cheesesteak sandwich at this thing, thinking, you know, I'm going to get, like, cheesesteak. I mean, it's meat. He comes out. It looks like cheesesteak. It's got all the peppers and the cheese and everything, and it tasted awesome. I mean, it was absolutely brilliant. It's not meat. I don't know what it is. I walked away from that. My head's like freaked out. I think I've just gone to some alternative dimension or something because I felt like I just ate meat, but it's all vegetarian. So how is that a thing? Is this something that, you know, 2017 they've discovered artificial meat? Because it tastes good. I don't know. Have you guys ever been to a vegan restaurant like that? I I honestly, (laughs) I would not know. If a vegan restaurant exists in the city of Atlanta, yeah, I got nothing. Oh, yeah, I, I mean, when there, it, there, go ahead. I was gonna say, isn't there something like, um, I've seen them use like this powder stuff on like, um, chef shows 
that gastro I, I, I don't know what it is. I'm leery to try it, but if someone like you says they can't tell the difference in taste, I would at least, I would give them a try. So you're it, someone whose opinion. It, it is worth a try. I mean, I, I'm looking at their menu right now to try to work out what's in this stuff. Uh, like, okay, so let me find the buffalo wings. Our award-winning vegan wings with cucumbers, carrots, and a side of dilly ranch. But they don't tell you what's in the wings, right? Because it's a secret, I guess. So I, um, what, what were the prices like? Did you pay a, a premium for non-meat meat? No, $5.50 for buffalo wings. Okay. I that's mean, that's pretty average. good. Yeah. And then like a burger. Let, let me find the burger here. Um Okay, uh, classic burger, $6.25. I'm trying to look for anything here that gives an idea. Here we go. It says substitute. No, that's that. I can't find out what it is. There's a secret here. They're not telling me. There's the big whack. Two hand-packed vegan patties, special sauce, lettuce, cheese, pickles, onions on a sesame seed (laughs) bun. (laughs) Oh, man. I, yeah, I don't know what it is, uh, but they're, they're not telling you, are they? They're not. They're, okay, right. The secret. I've got to find the secret. I need to know how they do this because it tastes like meat. Anyway, that's it. I just so freaked out. I'm still, my head's still spinning from this whole, like, that was meat, right? Experience. <laughs> anyway, that's it. That's all I got to say that sounds about interesting. that. I mean, I, th- it is true that um the world is running into a protein shortage a meat shortage um and vegetarian vegan you know solutions uh or eating crickets those are kind of the only two ways we can go we we can't grow any more cows any faster or any more pigs any faster than we're doing it so we need to either eat crickets or figure out how to make vegetables taste like meat so i'm all on board with making vegetables taste like meat um i'm i'm interested in it but you know, I, I like my meat. It needs to taste like meat. You know, I was... I, seriously, uh, if you if, if you guys do come to Phoenix, I'll take you there and I'll freak you out because you'll walk away going, that was really good. So, Miles, not to be crude, but were the latter end of the consumption process, uh, did you pay a price for that as sometimes do with with substitute items? Uh, no, I did not. Um, at least... Nothing out of the ordinary. Okay, so no. a couple of days later, you didn't regret that those chicken wings. Nope. Okay. Nope. Not at all. You know, we actually talked about what you were referring to, Mark, in a Bible class today at church, and it was like, for example, I mean, but no, here's you know, we were talking about the sacrifices in Leviticus, and um, but I brought up how if, for example, if I eat. If I were to eat vegetables and stuff, say it takes a yard of vegetables to feed me for a day. And, you know, that's just a number I pulled out of the hat. But if I choose to eat meat, then it took that cow a yard of vegetables for several days to feed me for less. And so, you know, the cow eats the food and then I eat the cow. So that cow had to survive for a long time that had I been eating the food, there would have been more of it to go around. And so, um, we just, yeah, what you referred to, it's called the conversion rate. And anytime you're raising an animal for food, you're interested in the conversion rate. Chickens have the lowest, uh, or the, the most efficient conversion rate of any livestock animal, uh, uh, beef, 
has the 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 worst conversion rate of any um uh meat animal uh sharks are like the worst ever recorded uh lions come right into that it, a lion you know say a, a hundred pounds of lion takes 98 pounds of hyena to run it um so yeah conversion rate crickets amazing conversion rate so you know it's all about the crickets you know chocolate covered dipped in honey that might not be so bad <laughs> i have had a couple you know of cricket like uh protein bars and had i not known they were crickets i would not know they were crickets however i did not think they were dates or you know anything like that. i could tell this was not something i'd ever eaten before i just wouldn't have known it was crickets uh, right what well, what's the um the snow piercer with the guy who played captain america yeah. um, no spoilers I haven't seen the, it oh you haven't oh yeah okay well <laughs> i mean it's, it's only on been the list. out for a few years yeah it's on the list uh no I, the, there is a statute of limitations the, the way i see it once something has made it to dvd and or streaming spoilers are allowed because at that point yeah, it's enough. on you you know yeah, I agree. I agree. It's I'm sick of, of having to walk around like I'm on broken glass all the time because of spoilers. Now, that's not true in the case of, say, Marvel's Defenders, which went straight to Netflix. So you got to you got to give it a leeway there. So, you know, three months or so. That seems fair. Six weeks. How about that? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> that, but see, look out, like look out listeners, a, we warned you. If it's a 13 week series. And I like to watch a, uh, an episode a week. I'm not a binge watcher. You got to give me 13 weeks, right? Well, right. Yeah, all right. Fair enough. Say so six weeks from the last episode of the series. <laughs> but if they're all dumped at the same... Yeah, anyway. See, this is why it's hard. <laughs> this is why it's hard to get along in 2017 because everybody's super sensitive about something. All right. I'm going to move on to um, uh, some listener feedback. And this first one... I'm almost certain I'm going to mispronounce the name, and I don't fully understand the context of the message, but it came with $10, so I'm going to pay attention. Uh, it was from Laurent, I'm going with L-O-R-A-N-T. He says, I'm a listener from Hungary, in parentheses, Finland. I don't understand that. Aren't those entirely separate, but linked maybe countries? Maybe li- lives in one was is from the other, yeah, possibly. Or, or maybe yeah, that's a I'm, town I'm, or a township. I googled Hungary, Finland, and I didn't find that. Or maybe I started. I'm. I live in Hungary now, and I'm from Finland. That makes sense to me. Anyway, says I'm a listener from Hungary, parentheses Finland. Finland. I agree with pay for what you like. So keep up the good work, and more will follow. So he just threw down the gauntlet, dude. You want money? Do the work. I'm all about that. Fine. Uh, so yes, Laurent, I will. Man of action. I like it. Thank you. <laughs> we appreciate it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Uh, and then uh, in a circuitous bit of feedback uh, that came in through the email but then got bounced because of the nature of the way that the attachment was sent and whatever, yada, yada, uh, our good friend the door-to-door geek reminds us that there are not three but four credit consumer information agencies. Uh, a direct quote from Wikipedia, most U.S. consumer credit information is collected by and kept by four national traditional customer uh, consumer reporting agencies, Experian, formerly TRW Information Systems and Services, and the CCN Group, Equifax, TransUnion, and Innovus, which was purchased from First Data Corporation in 1999 by CBC companies. These organizations are for-profit businesses and possess no government affiliation. I have never heard of Innovus. So there's another sneaky one out there, apparently. 
Yeah. Like we need more. <laughs> we really do. To keep the others honest, I think that yeah. will help a whole lot. Um, although I, I came across this story, you know, when I was looking for the, we used to do this thing called news where I would come up with stories <laughs> and we would talk about them <laughs> once in a while. Um, and I still do just to give me something to do on the weekends. But one of the, one of the articles referenced the big three consumers, um, um, consumer credit agencies. So it didn't say there were only three, but it referenced the big three. That so it's sense. sort of like how, you know, in automobile, Bill industry, you used to have the big three, uh, GM, Ford, and Chrysler. And then, you know, Chrysler became Dodge Chrysler and Dalmer Chrysler. And then Ford bought Jaguar and all these others. And there's a whole bunch of others. And then, you know, American car companies decided to quit innovating and just trust uh, the stupid American public to buy American cars. And the Japanese cars got really, anyway, so there's a whole bunch, but it was always the big three automotive makers. So yeah, I, I must say, after I read that uh, email, I thought, yeah, I've never heard of this four, but you know, I'm certainly could be correct. And so, um, just uh, maybe I was just a bit more sensitive to hearing all this news because all week it's been Equifax, Equifax, Equifax. Maybe we were ahead of the news curve or something with our show, but um, I watched every single news network from CNN to CBS. ABC, Fox, everybody said the big three. Everybody said it. And even off the hook, the Hacker podcast had their rant about Experian and again said the big three. And I'm thinking, well, I must be in the majority to be saying the big three as well, but we're probably all wrong. If there's a fourth, there's probably a fifth. And if there's a fifth, there's probably a sixth. And all I know is they shouldn't all be gone and we don't need them to have our data. Well, clearly it's the hidden fourth one that we need most to be afraid of. They're, they're <laughs> skulking behind the shadows. They will rise from, from the ashes. <laughs> so uh, will be. Pet and Net, just know that you are well represented by our friend, the door-to-door geek. Um, and then this one is uh, this one is old. It's uh, been sitting in my in basket for about a month now, and I just I, I I apologize, Rick. I have nothing but the sincerest apologies. I just it, it got skipped in my in basket. But our old friend Rick Rick let us know of a new um, use for the Bitcoin. He says I cannot be the first to send you this. You are Rick, and I'm using a Bitly link because for some stupid reason the regular link triggered the spam filter, and it says now Miles has a new reason to go to Vegas, and it's a mashable mashable argur, uh, article about a uh, strip club that now lets you tip the strippers with Bitcoin. <laughs> I love the QR codes on their arms. Apparently, you just scan their arms and tip them. Go yeah, figure. it makes it a lot less fun to slip the phone into the g-string though. Well, no, see, this way now you can take pictures and act like you're tipping them and they won't know. So, kudos. <laughs> That's a good point. I don't know. I've never <laughs> not, been to a strip club. Are you not that. allowed to use your phone there? Is that a rule? I I, I don't know. I was yeah. just going for the joke. So. But I love the fact never that, been. you know, whether it's representative or not, the picture that Mashable has picked up is a busty woman with a QR code stamped on her boob, which is just awesome in itself right there so priceless <laughs> yeah. maybe there's different codes on different parts of their bodies and they can track which one generates the most revenue i mean that would be an interesting way to uh really get your marketing data and your metrics to know what your consumers want sorry yeah. 
The article says the lap dances are where it gets interesting. During the event, dancers will be wearing strategically placed temporary tattoo with a QR code. If you want to tip a dancer, wave the phone over the tattoo, and voila, you're doing Vegas crypto style. If you're still unsure whether all this is uh, too adult only to bring your underage nephew along, just keep in mind that the place will be teaming with porn stars during the event, including Jesse Jane and Tasha Rain. I don't know what event, and I don't know who any of those people are, but it's a thing. So there you go. Ah, uh, the Bitcoin. Ah, uh, the Bitcoin. It is <laughs> porn is always almost always the first to try new technologies. And you know, and a lot of times they're the driver of you know they were the driver of DVDs. So right. they get around the problem of how do you swipe a credit card? That they do. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I'm just sorry. And and you know while we're on the subject. Uh, China has officially banned uh, uh, Bitcoin exchanges in their country, um, or is it still unofficial? Uh, it, it no, was, it's official. It was a leaked document. I wasn't sure if the leaked document had become official yet. Uh, yeah, but, it was official Friday night. So yeah, you can the- you can have Bitcoin, you just can't trans change Bitcoin into Chinese yuan. That's the issue, and it. It knocked it off of, uh, it, it kind of put a slow on the uh, meteoric rise of Bitcoin. Yeah, from 5,000 to about 3,500 last I looked. Yeah, the funny thing is, though, I think it was in 2014 or 2015. I, I can't even remember who said this, but it was somebody notable in the Bitcoin community had said anytime China bans something, Bitcoin always recovers really, really well, far more than it was before it got banned. So there's a. Uh, this historical precedent that whatever the price drive that dropped it down because of this banning, everybody saw that as a buy opportunity and, and, and hold into it. So we should see a serious recovery coming up soon. But uh, you know, know, Hey, it's not investment advice. (laughs) You could go the conspiracy theory route that China did that to drive the price down so they could load up and then, um, you know, dump high. So, I well, wouldn't, you know, I mean, that would be a neat way for a nation state to raise currency you and know, also ma- it's manipulate the, a market. You, you've had the, the government complicit um, uh, issue with the, the Bitcoin mining chips that only work at their peak efficiency in China. Um, so this would be a complete policy reversal change, although the, that policy was unofficial. So this would be... Uh, not so much an official one, but uh, it maybe it is the point where they have gotten to the point where they no longer have dominance. The 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 speed up in their chip is no longer enough to make them dominant, so they're just going to close the door on that. I don't know. Mm. I don't think that was the biggest news this week for Bitcoin that might have had a price effect, though. Apparently on CNBC this week, Jamie Dimon, the, ch- the president or chairman or whatever of Chase Bank of J.P. Morgan Chase, went full tilt mental yeah. uh, and Bitcoin said that Bitcoin a was a fraud. <laughs> and oh my gosh, did he get the Bitcoin community all riled up? They're ready to... Apparently he's firing anybody who works at Chase that trades in Bitcoin or any of his traders have got bought anything Bitcoin, they're fired immediately. For being stupid. 
Yeah, but you know, if you look at the return on investment they've probably gotten for their investment over the last 12 months, it's funny, I was looking back over some old tweets that I had posted about a year ago, back in, I think it was like New Year's Eve this year, and I was going on about how we might even see a Bitcoin price over $1,000 then. Right. I mean, well, <laughs> that was nine months ago now, you know? It seems like ancient history. I don't know too many people who are getting that sort of return on the S&P. Well, uh, yeah. the, the follow-up news story to that, and I don't have any links to it, was that some people did some, some searching through public records and found that his company was the biggest buyer of Bitcoin futures. <laughs> Apparently, his daughter owns a lot of Bitcoin too. <laughs> yeah, I wish Jamie, I had Jamie, a, Jamie. <laughs> I wish I had. I bought a. I went and I bought one Bitcoin whenever it looked like Donald Trump was going to win uh, the presidency. I was like, "That's something no one was expecting." Bitcoin is going to go up on this, so I bought. But because of how long it takes Coinbase to allow you to access what you bought, it kind of came off that high a little bit, and I waited. I paid around 700 once it got back up to about 750 or so I went ahead and cashed out. Man, I wish I would have oh, held silly. on to it for just a few months. <laughs> uh well, you know, hindsight's 2020. Yep. Yeah. I bought Bitcoin at 200. I think it might have been 400, but I think it was 200. And now it's up. It was 400 you know, and you bought a half. Yeah. Okay. So I bought at at 400. Um, and so it's now up, it has been over 10 times and now it's just under 10 times. And I bought ether at 13 and it's at, uh, 300. So that's 20 times. So I've done all right. I just wish I had invested more. Yep. If I had thrown 50,000 into that, I wouldn't have to be begging you for, for money or doing the show on a windows Vista laptop. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay, so this week, uh, th this whole September thing was supposed to be about strategies because um, it, it's alliterative, and I like alliterations, strategic September. And, and we were going to talk about a strategy for storage the first month, uh, the first week of the month, and then we didn't. And then we were going to talk about the second week of the month, and then we didn't. And so finally, we're going to talk about FreeNAS. We have talked about FreeNAS in the past uh, and Unraid, uh, something that uh, Chris was a big fan of. But going back over the, the notes, it's been like two years since we've talked about any storage at all. So uh, for those of you who are saying you've done this one before, yeah, we have, but it's been a while. Maybe a few things have changed. Uh, so Miles, FreeNAS, go. Well, I, actually, before I get into the FreeNAS thing, I was going to suggest maybe you guys could talk about what is a NAS and why would you want one? Okay. So NAS stands for Network Attached Storage, uh, and that's just what it is. It's uh, there's there's the super low level dumb. I'm just a box of storage sitting somewhere, and we all probably have that now in the form of a a USB plugged hard drive that you plug in once in a while. Um, if you have that plugged into the back of your router, like say a, a well, so many routers uh, have that ability, you have a NAS. If you've got a Raspberry Pi somewhere sitting around that you can FTP into or SSH into, you have a NAS. Um, if uh, back in the day uh, I was in love with my Pogo plug device, uh, which was one of the first commercial uh, NAS boxes like that, and you could plug uh, multiple things in. Now, if you go up into the the really fancy stuff like a Drobo, that's a NAS, and you can plug in 
Um, it's called a JBOD array, just a bunch of disks. You can plug in any disk of any size and of any speed, and it will sort of come up with the least common denominator and take all those disks and make a single chunk of space out of it. But it's costly. So let's say you give it, depending on the configuration, say you give it five terabytes of stuff, you may only be able to use four terabytes of it uh, because of the way JBOD is, can be expensive. Um, but a NAS is just that network attached storage. Now, it's something called eSATA, which is a, a SATA connection. Uh, SATA is the, the red cables inside your PC right now. Um, it's the standard uh, communication device, serial attached transport adapter. Quick, somebody Google that. Uh, but anyway, it's 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 sort of the standard right now. And then eSATA is a networked version of that same protocol that gives you almost, um, you know, it's it's really uh, maybe even truly. It's hard to say whether it's almost or truly. It all it depends so much. But you can get uh, the same kind of performance over a gig network connection with a NAS, you know, in in a, another part of your complex or even another part of the country, uh, if you have true gigabit connection to it, uh, that you would get with the hard drive in your PC connected with a SATA device. So if you can have one of those, a network attached storage essentially becomes then a, a hard drive, external hard drive with internal level performance that you can attach to multiple devices. So there's my overview of NAS. Yeah, I think that's a pretty pretty accurate one. I mean, I, I, the, here's the interesting thing that I've kind of looked at at a thousand foot view. If you look at the amount of storage that you need to, st- well, firstly, stuff that we have in our in our lives, in our homes, our families, uh, all this sort of thing, whether it be photographs or whether it be uh, movies or video or whatever, it's all gone digital. It, it that happened in the '90s. It continued into the 2000s, and it went. It went uh, Uber in you know two thousand the la- the last seven years or so, and so the interesting thing is that the hard drive manufacturers keep making these bigger hard drives to store more digital stuff. So you can buy like a ten terabyte drive now, and they're not that expensive. I mean, for the price that you used to pay for a hundred megabytes twenty years ago, you can have ten terabytes. So. You know, why wouldn't you, right? It's 200, 300 bucks and you can store everything you'd ever want. Well, that's all great, but how does everybody in the house get access to it? Because we're all using tablets and phones and TVs and computers and everything else. And so you kind of want to put it somewhere. So you need a way to get to it. And you need a device which is on a network that you can connect to to get to your stuff. And unfortunately, it still is a bit of a sort of, you know, the black art of the geeks in terms of how you share this stuff out to be compatible with as many devices as possible using this or that protocol. And it's something my grandmother could never do. And it's and it's always been, you know, the den of the geeks. But at the end of the day, if you've got um, an old computer and you put a couple of these big drives in it, uh, you have the same equivalent of Dropbox or any of these online streaming storage places at much higher speed uh, with no cost of bandwidth, and it's right there in your house. Um, and that's kind of a holy grail for a lot of people, especially if you've got a lot of movies and a lot of TV shows you watch and you're not streaming everything. Um, so there is a need for, for network-attached storage. But the problem is that it's 
it's become less and less of a thing because there's more and more streaming storage uh, availability. Like, you don't need to have a massive video library anymore if you've got Netflix and Amazon Prime because you can probably just get it over the internet and watch it at your convenience, right? The same is true with music collections. You don't need to have a big music collection if you've got Spotify. But you pay for this stuff and you pay for it. You know, there's a convenience cost, albeit it's really not that expensive, but it's still a convenience cost. And um, some people want to have it under their own control. And that's where a NAS becomes the default way of doing things. So I personally like the idea of having my own mass storage but I also realize that with great power comes great responsibility because you've got to back that stuff up and you've got to put it, you've got to know what you're doing technically to be able to make it work. So if you're the listener of this podcast, you probably do. Uh, you probably know those things. You probably know you've got to back this stuff up. You probably know how to do NFS or SMB shares or whatever the case is. You know how to set up the clients. You know how to set security and permissions uh, because we probably do that in our daily job or it's just something we've had to do over the years. But for the average, my, you know, my grandma's not doing that stuff, so she wouldn't know how to do it. Um, so this isn't for everybody. So um, that's kind of the background. If you're willing to go down that path, there are great rewards in that you can put everything you've ever got in central storage and everybody can get access to it, even from outside of your house if you know about, you know, you're willing to do the security uh, thing to make it all work. Um, the question comes down to where do you, how do you store it, where do you store it, and what are the tricks and tri traps and, and pitfalls of doing this sort of thing? So, just, um, I just want to interject I, here uh, yeah, a, a okay. couple of things. One, Jinda bails me out serial advanced technology attachment SATA. Thank you, Jinda. Ah, uh, but yeah. also um, all the stuff that you talked about, the the setting up of the storage and all that, um, the the cost of doing that in both in terms of, of time and energy and uh, energy as in electricity uh, is, is very minimal. Uh, a Raspberry Pi PC running without a fan quietly in your closet um, can do a full-on raid array uh and handle all these things as you're talking about the smb all the different uh things the pogo plug device that i was talking about it was an old uh you know like f cell phone processor is what it ran uh so people have known you know your, your roku has more power uh necessary than is necessary to do this sort of stuff uh but you know back in the the early days of this sort of stuff it took big iron to do it and people still think in terms of i need a rack of servers to have network attached storage, but you really don't. Um, like I said, I, I have a, a USB hard drive plugged into a, uh, a to the back of my router that's shared with a uh, with Samba, and so my Windows devices just connect to it as if it were another drive, and that that requires nothing, right? Of course, it's the lowest possible way to to do NAS. It's not backed up. It's not redundant. It's none of that. It's just a a, a drive plugged into a box. Uh, but what what Miles is going to tell you here, lest you think uh, this is over my head, the hardware is easy to 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 uh, to obtain and inexpensive, and the software, particularly what he's going to mention here, um, is is pretty point and click simple for anybody with any kind of technical ability at all. Maybe not grandma, but certainly your your twelve year old cousin could work his way through it. Yeah. Um, actually, before I launch into that, Seth, what do, what do you use for network storage? 
I really don't have any network storage because I'm the only one in my house who needs it. So I have a USB drive that I use. I have the spot on my uh, wireless router. I've just never plugged anything in. Okay. All right. So, yeah, that wireless router thing is something that um, probably came about in the last like five years or so because I remember installing various routers and access points and so on because I haven't had to reinstall them at my house. All my stuff was really old school and it never had those sort of attachments. I started to see those creeping in uh, over the last five years or so, but meanwhile I'd already gone and built some ridiculous storage thing, so I didn't really need it. <laughs> That's the other thing about storage. To geeks, it's kind of like car, you know, car hobbyists. It's like you've got to brag to your friends about how much storage you've got. It's like horsepower in your car engine. You know, I've got 24 terabytes of storage. You know, it's it's a manly thing. Is I that 7200 <laughs> or 5400 RPM? Oh, yep. hey. 10,000 <laughs> Raptor speed, baby. Uh, here you go. <laughs> Western Digital Red. <laughs> yeah so it's it's sort of sad anyway okay so um so if you want to do it see here's a whole bunch of things you could do you could go and get yourself a raspberry pi or an old pc that was you know going to get thrown out or donated to goodwill let me just interject here real quick mm -hmm. sorry the pc power supply connected to that old pc plugged in but not turned on uses more energy than a raspberry pi at full speed just going to leave it at that that is true that is true so so here's the here's the thing about storage um you need some redundancy and this is the thing that is important now you know if you if you're putting stuff on dropbox they're doing all the, the heavy lifting they've got the backups they've got the redundancy they you know if something goes so down it's their problem they'll deal with it we, we we hope um if you're doing it yourself it's now on you so if you go and get one of these glorious 10 terabyte hard drives and plug it into something for here's, here's my uh, rule for every terabyte of data you put on your NAS, you better have the same terabyte of data somewhere in a backup. So if you want to go and do the 24 or the 30 or the 60 terabyte NAS, because you want all that storage, well, you better also have an exact version of that as a backup for when the NAS fails. Because I guarantee if you have to report to your wife that you lost the kid's photo album, it ain't going to end well for you. And so you better be prepared to back everything up and guarantee that the backups are 100% synchronized as, as often as you possibly can. And that means more geek cred required because now you've got to build effectively two of them. Having said all One of, of that... Offsite. that uh, sorry? One of them off-site, ideally. Ideally, yes. But again, that's relying on you having the bandwidth to be able to push 24 terabytes worth of data out of your house into your backup. And so that often can be issues. So anyway. Here's, look, uh, I, I want to interject something. Even uh -huh. If you can't go off-site, at the very least, put it on a different circuit in your house. Most people don't think about that, and they'll put the two servers right next to each other. But ideally, if you can't go somewhere else, put one on the other side of your house on a different circuit. Because if something blows one circuit, it might not blow the other. If a tornado takes out part of your house, it might leave the other. So you can maybe not get the benefits of off-site, but you can kind of mitigate putting everything 
right next to each other. And that's something you don't think about until the tornado hits and you're like, why didn't I put it in the other room? You know, so that's just something to think about now. Not that any well, geeks are ever going to do that, but, you know, we'll tell people to. <laughs> but you bring up a good point. I mean, power is, an, you know, we, we in the data center world don't really have to deal with that because we've got massive UPSs and diesel generators backing them up. And we're on four different power circuits from different providers. But you pay a premium for that, but you forget about it after a while. And it's just, it always just works. But in your house, you don't have that. So you've got to have your own UPS. Otherwise, you're going to put all of your family photo album on this, on this hard drive and the power's going to go out and the hard drive's going to die. And you're probably going to get killed by your wife. So you better have a UPS. And the thing with UPS is, is the batteries last about three years before they start making annoying beeping noises and you're going out to Amazon to buy replacement batteries. So this is an ongoing cost. Now, I'm not trying to put anybody off doing a NAS. I'm not. But I'm saying go in, eyes wide open. You need two of them. You need UPSs. And then you need the skills to be able to put all of that together. But you can do it. It's not that difficult. But Just that's a, at least the minimum starting point. A little redneck UPS hack. Um, if you go down to your local hardware store or Walmart and buy a couple of deep cycle marine batteries, you can tie those into the battery receptacle on the regular US UPS that you would buy at Office Max. And not only will it give you far more battery life, but it will last a long time. And that trickle charge charge those at that point you're getting you know three to five years uh is pretty standard but you could get with two two uh deep cycle marine batteries chained in series to that box there you could take your ups and make it last three to five days of power outage just something that you know if you're a total uh speeds and feeds nerd um it's a fun project um i, I built that for uh where when i was in schools uh that was what was powering our central uh, communication system, the, the, the IP based phone system. I made sure that whatever else happened, those would run. And so uh, I had a big beefy UPS that would actually uh, handle the POE for the phones and everything. And, uh, and powered that off of a big UPS and then chained several Marine batteries to that. So fun stuff. Yeah, absolutely. That, that, that does work. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm, I always, you know what I do, I, I, I'm, I hate the fact that people throw UPSs out as soon as the battery runs out. Mm -hmm. It's such a waste. It's like throwing your printer out because you ran out of toner. I mean, it's ridiculous. I so carry one in I, my car with me that I have uh, soldered uh, battery clamps onto so that if I'm ever out and I need to power something, I can hook it straight up to my, my car because it's a, it's a handy source of power. That's cool. That's very cool. Yeah, um, but if you you know if you've got a UPS and the battery dies, just do a search on Amazon for replacement battery for that model, and you'll find you can buy them for you know twenty thirty bucks plus shipping. Um, it's you know there's a lot of companies out there that sort of recycle batteries and and will sell another one, and you know, get more a few more years out of your UPS, and you won't be paying two hundred bucks each three years for it. Anyway, that aside, so you want to build a, a NAS. So one of the things that you want to do is you want to do it in, a, in, a, in, in some sort of a computer or a case or something that can handle multiple hard drives. Um, 
You may ask, well, if I buy a 10 terabyte drive, why do I need more of them? Well, because the 10 terabyte drive might die. So you need something at least within the, the storage, which is going to do some sort of redundant storage. And there's a whole bunch of ways of doing it. There were... There is the old ways of doing it, which the enterprise or the data center prefers, and that would be RAID, uh, which is a, a way of doing redundant drives or storing things across many hard drives. So if one dies, the others can recover automatically from it. Um, that can be very expensive because you have to buy expensive cards and then you have to have enterprise class hardware to run it. And then all the drives have got to be the same uh, type or model or size that matches so that they can be spread across the RAID array. And it's another technical hurdle that you're going to have to overcome again to even get to the point where you can install this NAS stuff. But it is a way of doing it. But there are other ways of doing it. And the particular ones which uh, I'm sort of talking about today are non-RAID uh, storage meth methods that give you some redundancy. So um, this the first one's one that I actually use, I've been using for probably, man, it must be at least 10 years, if not longer. And that's a program called Unraid. And what Unraid is, I think it's a, a free download for just a couple of disks, but if you need more than that, you pay them a, a nominal fee. Um, but it's basically software... RAID or software redundant storage across multiple hard drives that's managed by a central server uh, that also happens to do all of the sharing and, and so on. And uh, it's very good. It's very reliable. Um, it works extremely well. I've had unraid servers for decades, and when they die or when a hard drive dies, it will automatically recover from a what they call a parity drive. And um, and it will keep running so that you just check on it. You say, oh, my drive's died. You pull the thing out. You put a new one in. You wait for it to initialize the drive. And it puts the whole thing back together again as if nothing happened. Um, it's a good investment and it works well. And with newer hardware, you can support, you know, multiple uh, 40, 50 terabytes of storage on these things without too much difficulty. Um, and I think I think you probably pay maybe a hundred bucks or something for the software to do it, and it will work on most older hardware. But you've got to have hardware that can handle and address large disk sizes, so that might mean that you do have to upgrade to something. Um, so that's that's one way of doing it, and it's fairly easy to do. It's not too complicated. The other options are the open source. NAS solutions, and there really are probably two dominant ones. One is called OpenFiler, and the other one's called FreeNAS. Now, OpenFiler used to be a thing, and it kind of died a natural death. It was one of those uh, projects that they didn't release a new version for years, and eventually everyone said, whatever happened to, and, and it was, you know, one of those things that kind of went along the wayside. Um, it predominantly lost out its uh, appeal to this project called FreeNAS, which I think you can get to at freenas.org or freenas.com. Um, and FreeNAS has not, not necessarily gone through a, a life of, of ease and, and convenience either because uh, it, it's gone, I think it's at version 11 right now. Uh, and roundabout version 9, where they had a pretty good release of FreeNAS, they tried to go to version 10 and everything went to 
you know, went down the toilet for them. And at the end, I think the chairman of the project or the lead project lead threw his arms up and quit. And eventually other people had to take it over. And eventually they sort of brought it back from the ashes. And now free NAS 11 is a thing. And, and, and it's pretty good. Um, I've got free NAS running in commercial environments, serving commercial servers. And it, it's pretty reliable. It itself does not really go down per se. Uh, it doesn't require a lot of really expensive hardware to run. Uh, the things that it does require is a lot of memory. It needs at least eight gigabytes of RAM to run. It does a lot of things in, in memory. And uh, as far as the um, – it doesn't use RAID as its storage. It uses a protocol called ZFS. And ZFS is one of those interesting what they call journaling file systems that allows you to spread your data using kind of a soft RAID type technology across multiple drives. And again, if one goes down, it's able to recover by recovering a journal and sort of putting everything back together again. Um, sometimes you've got to intervene with it and it's not too bad. It's pretty reliable for that sort of thing. Uh, but it comes with this uh, really cool uh, technology called snapshotting. And that allows you to take a copy of everything you got stored in a volume or, you know, like a virtual storage bin, if you like, and copy it to something else. So you could put like an external drive or something like that, and you can snapshot to that storage mechanism, and that's how you do your, your backups. It's extremely quick. Uh, it'll keep uh, a delta between what the previous backup was and what was currently on your system. So you only have to deal with the with the changes between say each day that you're backing it up but it will put it all back together for you um it's quick it's reliable and so far so good uh, in my experience I've, I've had free nas running in commercial environments now for about two years and uh they they have been pretty good i haven't had too many issues um so really that's that's kind of a, a very high level overview to these things um so, I mean, out, out of, that's been my experience. What's been your experience, Mark? So I used FreeNAS uh, in the enterprise environment uh, there uh, when I was a school IT guy. Uh, ran it, if I remember correctly, it's BSD-based, right? Or yes. have they moved on to, to something no, else? Still BSD. Okay. So, yeah, it's, it's a BSD-based uh, system, uh, which doesn't really mean anything. It's just, it's, it's not Unix. It's not Linux. It's BSD. It's a... It's a Unix derivative in the same way that Linux is a BSD derivative. Uh, but if you're familiar with Linux, you can, you'll be fine. You'll be dropped down and be use all the commands you're used to using. Um, but it, uh, it just worked. It was a GUI setup. Uh, as I remember, I set up the OS on a flash drive plugged into a spare, uh, old, uh, like Pentium era server, right? So it was a, it was an old server that, uh, that we had long since decommissioned, but it had the, the I think SCSI is actually what I was running, uh, card in it. Uh, and so the FreeNAS was running on a on a, uh, a flash drive, and I, th I think that's still how they like to recommend it. You don't put, you, you don't put your OS on your data. You, you keep them separate. So you install FreeNAS on a flash drive, and then it uses all the hard drive space it can find in the machine, and it automatically figures out the best configuration for you uh, based on the drive. So it, it surveys your drives, sees what kind they are, what uh, size they are, and just says, you want to use all of it or as much as you can of it? And you say yes, and it goes. Um, 
and it's got all the built-in FTP, SCP, uh, SMB. Um, what's the Apple one? I don't even know. Um, oh yeah, uh, but it's uh, AFS. It, it's all there, and it all works w- without ever having to drop down to the command line. It's uh, it's a web-based interface, or at least the last time I used it, it was, uh, and it just it just works. Uh, and so there's just no reason not to use that if you've got the hardware. I don't know if FreeNAS will work on a Raspberry Pi. I haven't tried, but if you've got a PC laying around, I can guarantee, almost guarantee you, it will work on that. And you just you know stick in whatever drives you've got, and uh, it works, and it's seamless, and and it's good. So that's yeah, my I mean, review it- of FreeNAS. Uh, well, I, I'm with you on that. I my only concern with FreeNAS was that it, if if they're advertising that you could pick up any old PC and just pop it on, and you're up and running, there's a lot of th- that's not true. You need eight gigs of RAM, so whatever you've got's got to have eight gigs of RAM. So getting that on a Raspberry Pi might be a bit of a uh, it may not be impossible, but it might be a bit difficult. Um, well, 11, it, now, yes, I've, I've, I'm on their website now. FreeNAS 11 requires 8 gigs of RAM. The one I was using way back when, uh, it was 4-ish or less. So right, they, right. whatever reason, whatever their architecture changes, they now require more RAM. Yeah. Um, and then, of course, the other thing is that these larger hard drives are often not compatible with motherboard SATA connections. They won't recognize the capacities, which, uh, you know, I guess motherboards were not able to predict the rise of storage uh you know that drives are going to get that big and they're going to get bigger so if you've got an old computer it may be that it limits the size of a drive that it can see at two terabytes for example uh you're going to need to be able to address larger capacities um and many of them so that may put you into i've got to buy a new motherboard to run this thing um having said that it's not that expensive to buy a motherboard and CPU combo to replace out the one you've already got in a computer box uh, that only needs to be able to address eight gigs of RAM and large hard drives. Yeah, you could um, buy a, a CPU case, power supply, uh, RAM for three hundred ish dollars. Yeah, yeah. Now you're going to need a power supply that's going to be able to power all the drives. But if you're not using legacy drives like like this is an interesting kind of uh negative return you get with hard drives i'm sure that there's a lot of us out there that over the years have been upgrading computers in our house and we've got like old hard drives lying around that you didn't want to get away because it used to have somebody's tax return on it and you didn't want to give it to anybody and so you've got this collection of hard drives stacking up in a box somewhere in the garage and you, you're thinking well maybe i could just use those in my raid array or my my um unraid array or my free nas array or whatever well yeah you can but each one of those is going to take a slot in your case and each one of those is going to take a power supply connector and each one of those is going to take power to run it and if they're only one or two terabyte drives, do you really want to do that? And so when you're building this stuff, it's really, really easy to sit there and go, I'm just going to spend a lot of money and I'm just going to buy like three 10 terabyte drives and a massive computer with a ton of RAM and, and all this network stuff. And, you know, I'm going to go great because I want my 24 terabytes of storage. It's very easy to fall into that trap. 
But just remember, this stuff changes all the time. Today, it's 10 terabytes. Tomorrow, it's 16. Today, it's this chip. Tomorrow, it's that chip. Buy for the period of time that's reasonable for your use case. The one thing I will say about NAS is they're not the sort of thing you really want to be upgrading all the time. And maybe you need it for storage, but after a while, it becomes a bit of a burden. You kind of want to just stick it in the closet, shut the door and forget about it. And it's just there. Um, but, you know, if you're buying not the most recent stuff or you're too recent <laughs> or you're way, way behind the curve, then you're constantly opening the closet all the time and upgrading it. And after a while, it becomes kind of a, an annoyance rather than an enjoyable experience. So, um, and it's always stressful because you got, you know, you got the wife's family photo album there and you're going to get killed if it dies. So, you don't want to be mistakenly destroying it. Miles' wife so, uh, is very violent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you don't be touching the photo album. I can tell you that. Never piss off an Aussie woman, apparently. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, so anyway, that, that's kind of where I would leave it. It's like pick the right hardware and the right combination. And here's the really cool thing. FreeNAS is free. Um, they do have some commercial offerings where they bundle it with their hardware and mark it up and so on, and that helps the project, and I'm sure that's that's good. But uh, like I said, you're probably going to be upgrading hardware as you go through this thing. So don't, you know, getting a free operating system ain't such a bad thing. But again, as, as we would say, Mark, you can say this. I'll let you go. Say the slogan. Pay for what you like. There you go. So if you want to buy, I'm on Amazon right now, homeandopi.com slash Amazon. If you want to buy a free NAS mini, it's a thousand bucks with no discs in it. The hardware you get is not worth a thousand bucks. You're donating to the project. Um, just know that that's what's happening and pay for it. Um, however, you can get a two-base Synology that runs with and is on the approved list for free NAS uh, uh, box for 169 Again, discless. Uh, you can get. Um, I'm, I'm just sc scanning through here. You can get a four or six bay drive for for five hundred dollars or so, um, which is about what you would pay to piece together all your own thing. So at that point, it's worthwhile to just have somebody else do it, unless you just want to do it for the fun of doing it. And there's no nothing wrong with that. Uh, no, but don't forget, you're going to need two of them. Because you've right. got to back that thing up. So you're going to need to have a way to do the the secondary system and ideally it needs a way, it need to have a way to set it up so you segment the files that are critical that you can afford to not, you, you can't afford to live without and they will need to go somewhere out into the off-site world. Um, so you may end up having to pay for a, a Dropbox or a, or a similar service anyway, just to be able to have some redundancy in those areas. So it, it doesn't mean that, you know, your entire Star Trek video collection has to go out there uh, unless you really want to <laughs> send a lot of stuff out there. But um, certainly the family stuff and your tax documents and all the things you can't afford to live without need to get backed up. Yes, yeah, so I'm looking here uh, again on, on Amazon. Uh, you can get a five-bay NAS for $400. So that's that's everything but the five hard drives that you would need uh, for $400, you know, Amazon Prime shipped to you in a couple of days. If you're a um, 
more money than time kind of person, then that's absolutely the way to go. So uh, throw in some drives. Let's say it goes up to 500 uh, and then you want to buy two of them. So for $1,000, you can protect everything um, you know, within an afternoon of configuration. You know, if your yep, wife's as mean as Miles is, $1,000 is worth worth it. Well, and the other thing, I think you probably want to go with uh, three drives, maybe not two, because then you can take advantage of the uh, the journaling and the parity drive setup and everything like that too. Well, no, um, I was I was saying two boxes of up to say four drives is what I that's right. What I was okay, about. Yeah. yeah, that'll work. I guess your backup server doesn't have to be anywhere near as sophisticated or as fast as your primary as well. You may be able to save a little money on that. Um, but, you know, if you just want to get to of everything and be done with it, then uh, do that and uh, happy wife, happy life. And, of course, the the, the much uh, less expensive up front uh, but more expensive over time method is to, you know, use a service like um, uh, Carbonite or uh, Crash Plan. You know, they still have their commercial things. And, and you pay them X amount per month for infinity and you let them worry about it. Or you buy the giant Dropbox plan, um, yeah, or the or you pay for Google Drive. With uh, with Google Drive, you can now put a shim in on your computer and treat it like a regular mapped drive, assuming your your backup, you know, assuming your internet speed is fast enough. You know, that's uh, plenty fast to stream a movie. Um, it, it you know most people don't need super high data access anymore. Whatever you're getting over your internet most of the time is good enough. We're not usually shunting giant files across and we need to do it in real time. So there's lots of other options out there, but this was just the, the geek's way of, of, you know, doing it yourself. It, it's certainly interesting, isn't it? How things are changing because we don't, we don't think about this stuff as much because everything's streamed, right? Like you, what do you care about having to have a massive video library like we used to do 10 years ago or so because everything's on Netflix. Just get it when you want it, watch it, and, and that's it. But if, if, you, if you've got a collection of stuff and you value that collection, you've got to store it, and then you've got the responsibility of making sure that it's stored properly. So th- there's still a lot of need and room for uh, network storage uh, in your house. And uh, I'm a fan of them. I think they're great. I think you should have a big NAS and uh, brag to your friend. I took the time to digitally uh, remaster all my video cassette tapes, all the VHS stuff. I wasn't content to just go buy them all again for $19 a piece. Uh, I ran them through a camcorder and actually converted them into uh, MP4 files painstakingly one at a time. Um, But I, I now have my collection going all the way back to like, you know, uh, Forrest Gump in 1994, you know, before there was such a thing as a DVD player, uh, or at least before it was uh, commercially uh, common. Uh, and so I have all of those plus my DVDs. Uh, between all of that, I have in the neighborhood of 400 movies plus entire runs of TV shows uh, like the both Star Trek, the next generation and the original. And all of that fits on a 1.5 terabyte drive. So to say Miles is, is talking, you know, uh, choose either 24 or 48 terabytes. Yeah, let's just bring it back down to life here. My entire collection sits on a 1.5 terabyte drive. Yeah, but you know what they say about closet space. <laughs> the more you got, the more you store. Probably. <laughs> so, Seth, you've been uncharacteristically quiet. What do you have to say? Well, 
I'm listening to us. If our um, past selves could come and listen to this conversation, they would berate us for how much we rely on streaming media and how we don't have local copies of the stuff we're getting online. So, you know, the, in, in one sense, you almost have to try to puke up the red pill and go back to storing stuff locally because nowadays the average person isn't going to do this. I mean, I think it's cool and I, I keep trying to come up with a reason to, you know, set up an ass and, and I just like, I really don't have one. So, um, you know, I mean, I've got a handful of DVDs I could, you know, rip over, but I don't have much of a reason. So I, I'm... I'm I'm hoping I'll be quiet enough that they don't come take my geek card. So, <laughs> see, I don't. Uh, as a rule, I don't buy things on like Amazon Prime or Google Play. Um, I buy the medium because I want to own it. I don't want Google Play to decide, or Netflix is a great example to decide. Well, my contract's up; that thing's going away. If I want it, I want it. If I want enough to buy it, I'm going to buy it. So, uh, oftentimes, what I will do is I will buy the Google Play version just because my kids want to watch it now and then I'll go to the store and pick up the DVD and throw it to my archive. So now I've spent $40 for it, but that's less than half of what it would cost if I'd taken them to the movie. So it's a win-win all the way around. Yeah. It is interesting though, how we, if you go back in time and you look maybe at five or 10 years ago, the conversations we were having were berating you know apple for having drm on their content so you couldn't download that music program file rip a cd whatever it is because the the man was out to get you and the licensing and the copyright and yada 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 and then out of that spawned pirate bay and all these sites like that well that's not really a thing anymore because one of the reasons why there was such a need for it was the convenience that was not there to get access to content now with streaming services, the convenience is there. So we just give up that fight and we just go ahead and listen to that music on Spotify. We don't pay the artist and buy their, their uh, recording. We, we just stream it and they're not making any money, but we're still getting to hear it. But that's okay until you're sitting at a, on a plane at 38,000 feet and you can't listen to anything because they've got really bad Wi-Fi or you're not allowed to stream it. And all of a sudden you're saying, well, I wish I had a copy of that movie to watch on this you know, five-hour flight or I wish I, I was listening to anything. And, oh, th- thank God I got podcasts because at least they download to my device. So, uh, you know, that's good. But at the same time, I mean, we don't we, – if we, we live in a world where we're relying on streaming – we lose we've given up is basically what we've done we've given up all of the things that we fought really hard for five or ten years ago to try to get control of our media we've just said ah we'll give it up we'll just get it off netflix that's kind of sad it's a win for everybody but consumers because now the big corporations they have the media and the other big corporations have put data caps on you so if you want to watch the media more than once then you're going to go over your data cap so you know that's more money out of your pocket because you don't own the thing you just want it on demand so aren't we aren't people smart I'm just saying I I don't fit any of that mold you're talking about because I have everything on a nice drive served up uh, by a Plex server. And so if I'm streaming it, I'm streaming it from me. Um, And, you know, my entire music collection uh, is on my phone. I don't mean streaming. I mean 
on my phone. It takes up less than four gigs of space because music really super compresses. Um, but I, I haven't bought a CD in years. Uh, I, I just, whatever's, whatever crap is being produced right now, uh, the few things I like to listen to, Spotify is good enough. Um, I don't even know where you buy CDs anymore. What, Barnes & Noble, are they still a thing? Know. I mean, I, Tower I, Records I was, went bust. <laughs> I assume you left. could buy them from Amazon, maybe. But oh, like yeah, what, I <laughs> when I do buy music, like uh, if I buy something from um, Amazon or from iTunes or something like that, uh, it's been, again, years since I did, uh, I immediately burn it to a CD and then rip that CD to an MP3 so that I own that file. Um, that's just, you know, I still have a little bit of that neck beard in me uh, that, that makes me want to own the file. Yeah, no, you know, the the more we talk about this, the more I realize that the whole concept of a NAS is very empowering, but you have to realize and recognize why it's empowering to have one. Um, I was just thinking, you know, because I just finished doing a whole bunch of taxes with my accountant this week, and uh, I use QuickBooks. You know, when you run QuickBooks, you can buy the online version or the desktop version. Well, I still like the desktop version because it's just what I've been using for decades and, and it's what I know. And it's still richer in functionality than their online version. But they want to sell the online version and they'll do everything to try and shut me down from having my, my local desktop version. But then I'm relying on them. I'm relying on their control of my data. And if I give that fight up... They win somehow, I guess, or I lose somehow. Well, because and they win because I don't know. I just don't want to give up that fight. So if I have becomes, to be, if, you know, yeah, becomes Sorry, a subscription. It, you know, your one-time purchase becomes a monthly subscription. So they win because they stick you for more money. Yeah, yeah, I guess you're right. And I guess I can't go anywhere, right? I mean, they got my data. I can't go and buy product X. That's their next competitor. But yeah. I don't know. To me, I just want I just want to own it. I just want to have my stuff. But what's know. interesting, though, Miles, the uh, you you did a little anecdote anecdote about doing your taxes. You needed the thing. You pulled it up off your NAS on your phone. Uh, more and more, the only reason you would want to keep your stuff on a NAS in your home is so that you could stream it when you're not in your home. The, those streaming is such a a part of the culture. That even if you own it, you still have to give yourself access to it outside of your network. Well, that's true. That's true. Yeah, um, you're right. I, I, uh, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. That's uh, an important thing. I mean, in this particular case, though, I could put all of the files I need and pop it on a thumb drive and drive over to my accountant, and give it to him, and I guess that's security. But, uh, but yeah, I could definitely also just stream it. And with products like OwnCloud and Plex, there's there's lots of things out there that let you do that very thing. Take your stuff and make it available wherever you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it's free. Some of it is uh, requires a, a a payment. And personally, I'm in uh, you know I'm a fan of payments uh, uh, because that encourages the people to stick around. Um, you know, uh, my Plex for my kids will go to Plex again because we have a large collection and because it's well done, they'll go to Plex first and then Netflix later. Uh, you know, and so I am running my own Netflix out of my house. It's on my, my kids devices on my devices. Uh, and we can watch our whole library from anywhere. Um, I paid, I think it was $25 a lifetime fee for that. Maybe it's a hundred. It was dirt cheap back when I got in, but now there's a monthly fee or a lifetime fee that you pay to have that available, to make it that easy. 
there are other ways I could do that. I could make the the stuff all available, but Plex is so easy. Uh, it's worth it to me to pay for their server space, and all they're doing is just hosting the connection between my device uh, locally and my device remotely. Um, and so there's always going to need to be that intermediary, and that's where the money is to be made or, or where the, the, the challenges develop because those can be tricky to build and build well. Anybody can kludge an FTP, but um, only the geeks really know how to make that work. Uh, so you need uh, – I think that's the future right there is, is uh, while streaming is going to be the thing for a while, eventually things like data caps are going to win, and we're going to have to start owning our stuff and then the, the middleware – the new middleware will be giving you access to your own stuff. Well, my hope is on uh, probably on an upcoming show that we can do some, some work on some of the newer uh, distributed file protocols out there where everybody participates as one big part of a huge data storage for everyone to use, like, like IPFS, um, which I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time with of late. So I should be able to bring some personal experience to the table on that one too. Cool. All right. I think we have thoroughly and soundly beaten that horse. Um, and once again, Seth, we made sure that uh, all these great news stories you had, we didn't have time to talk about. Um, we're going to have a newsapalooza. <laughs> we're going to have a newsapalooza probably next week. Why not? Let's just do that. It's uh, right. Is that the last week of the month? Yes, it is. So we'll just, all the stuff we skipped <laughs> for the last three episodes, we'll let you do. That's Yay. Okay. I mean, you know, we'll see what comes up. They'll probably <laughs> usually whenever we do those, there's a lot of good stuff that comes up that week. That's so. true. Yeah. All right. We'll see what happens. But for now, tell me what happened this week in history. All right, Mark. On this week in history, September the 20th, 1983, the RSA algorithm patent is awarded. The RSA algorithm, one of the world's most widely used encryption methods, has been had been developed in 1977. Scientific American columnist Martin Gardner wrote a description of the algorithm in his Mathematical Games column, mentioning that readers could send a self-addressed stamped envelope to receive a copy of the MIT technical memorandum describing it. More than 3,000 people sent envelopes, though they did not receive their copies of the papers until after the patent was issued six years later. <laughs> Due to members of the National Security Agency holding it till they broke it, I'm sorry, raising questions about the legality <laughs> of making the information available. And that happened this week in history. And now back to you, Mark. So that, yeah, that was back during the time when the, the government was actively trying to prevent you from having good encryption. They still yep. don't want it and they still want to break it, but they have stopped at least temporarily uh, actively preventing you from having it. There was a time when you couldn't have encryption greater than, I think it was 48 bits. And they officially, they said, uh, if you're going to export it outside the country, you can't have one greater than that, which meant that anybody who ever wanted their software to be used by their Canadian neighbors to the North couldn't use it. So essentially they just crippled encryption for about a decade there. And so this was in that time period where the NSA was saying, you know, if we let people encrypt stuff, we won't be able to read it. And the RSA guys went, um, yeah, it's kind of the point. Yeah. And, you know, all of this ties in with one of the news stories. It was an older one where the CIA um, 
um, WikiLeaks published that they have been hacking into uh, D-Link, Belkin, and other routers for years, being able to see what's on your home network. So it's a good thing that we have all telling people how to set up the NASs so that way the government can keep track of us. <laughs> and when our NAS goes down, we can do a Freedom of Information Act to get them to send Read us our, our backup. So yeah. I think that would work out really well. And that's the government um, using resources rightly. Sometimes it just makes you sigh. That's all you can do. Yeah. So this is the part of the show where I ask you what you think. Go to elementop.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page, fill out the world's hardest captcha, and uh, then fill out the form uh, on the page there. That will send a message directly to my in-basket that gets priority there. You will go above all the other spam that I get. Um, <laughs> or if you don't want to filter through me and you want to freedom power to the people, you can email geekrant at elementop.com that goes to all three of us. And therefore I will not be able to censor the mail to the other two guys, or you can dial five, five, nine. I am Opie, leave a message on our Google voice line and we'll probably play it on the show because let's face it. We don't have a lot of other choices. So let us know what you think. Element Opie, element Opie, for those of you that say I say it too fast, element as in periodic table of elements, Opie as in Opie Taylor, or more recently, Opie from Sons of Anarchy. Um, and uh, click on the contact and let us know what you think. Now, Seth, what do you have to lower my productivity when I'm not clicking drops uh, to make you okay. look like a better hiring option? You didn't seem to like my alchemy link last week, so I've chosen something uh, different I don't know what this you're talking week about. where you have to click the color. So you go up here, and it goes to this website, and there is the color. The name is yellow, but the color that's written is red, so you have to click red and not yellow underneath in a certain amount of time, and every time it's shorter and shorter, so it's kind of like, you know, are you color stimulated or are you word stimulated to know if this is hard, and for me, it's very hard because I see the word, but I'm, I have to stop because I like, wait a minute. I see what the word says, but that makes it harder for me to identify the color. And so by the time I work all that out, can I find the color in the chart and click it before, um, you know, before time's up? That messes with your head, doesn't it? It's, it's a neat, uh, kind of a neat game. I did finally complete a level, so I was, I was happy about that. Wow. That is a, a well-known psychology experiment. And uh, surprisingly, not surprisingly, it works really well on people who can't read. Um, but it's, you know, it's the two parts of your brain. We're programmed to process symbology more than, than colors. Uh, I guess it may be if we had a language coded in colors, the symbology wouldn't mean as much to us. Uh, yeah, yeah or, it's really you know, hard. If it was it's like really hard in chinese or some language right. i can't read it would probably be easy, much easier right yeah so uh, but it's really hard to look at the word pink colored black and having to click on black and not pink right um it's <laughs> there's some real cognitive dissonance going on there good stuff it, it took me like seven or eight times before i even understood what was going on i'm like wait yeah. a minute it says yellow i'm clicking on yellow and then i tried to click the dots on the side of the screen and i couldn't figure out what was going on for a while and i went oh that's what he's doing so, yeah when i first saw it i said click the color not the word and then i'm looking at all the colors and they're all white yep it says pink blue black but they're all white and then i realized oh there's that big word up above it that right. moron <laughs> guilty i did the same thing 
uh, I think that's right brain, right, right brain, left brain, uh, all over the place. Uh, all right, that's it. Thanks, folks, for hanging out with us. Uh, this was a, a relatively dry show about a relatively dry topic, but one that is important. Um, and by the way, if you have a NAS in your basement, it's important that you keep it dry, too. Just saying. So <laughs> we'll see you next week. Remember, pay for what you like, people. <laughs> <laughs>